0: You may open your Bible to Second Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 10b to 16. We'll begin with reading the Word of God together. Hear the Word of the Lord. Bold and willful they, that is the false teachers, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now it's been a couple of weeks since we have been in this letter of 2nd Peter, so I think it's important that we remind ourselves why Peter wrote this letter to the church. It's difficult, isn't it? Chapter two. I mean, you, we read those verses over together and it's like, wow, that's what we have to go over today. It's necessary. Uh, we must absolutely take as seriously the threat of false teachers within the church as the Bible does. So even as chapter 2 seems to go on and on and on about it, we can't, I don't think, I suppose it's possible, but it's very unlikely to happen, that we could be accused of beating a dead horse as we go on and on about false teachers. Because the Bible speaks of false teachers and false prophets all over its pages. And with very strong warning. This is why Peter wrote the letter. Peter stirs us to grow in the knowledge and godliness of Jesus so that we'll escape the destructive end of false teaching and enter Christ's kingdom on the day of the Lord. At the beginning of chapter 2, let's get into more of our immediate context here. At the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 1 to 3, Peter spelled out some of the characteristics of these false teachers. And for memory's sake, we alliterated these characteristics. First of all, their presence and their influence is definite. They are devious. They are driven by evil desire, defiant, destructive. And lastly, justly, the Bible is clear that they are damned. In the next paragraph that begins in verse 4 and takes us down through the first part of verse 10, Peter uh, was threading together a long conditional sentence, that is, an if-then sentence. We have a whole series of ifs, actually, that are followed by a then that has two parts. And I'll just sum up this whole if-then statement. The statement is this, if God swept away the ungodly in the past, once and again and again, though those ungodly were many or mighty, and if he saved the godly, though they were weak and few, then we know he will do so again in the end, and we must trust in him. Let me read the last um, verse, well, nine, let me read nine B and ten A, the, the last words that would close out that, that paragraph. He says, the Lord knows how, now skip down to the second half of verse nine, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, and despise authority. And there's our transition. You could call it a, a swing verse or a hinge verse or whatever. But with that uh, specificity at the beginning of verse 10, Peter is closing out the thought of the one paragraph. And he is opening the thought of the next paragraph, which is what we already read and what we're going to study today. So what Peter is going to do in verses 10b to 16 is he is going to very thoroughly expose the godlessness of the false teachers in their lust for corruption and their rebellion against authority. And he's going to split, our, our paragraph for today is basically going to split, uh, it's going to be split into two. What Peter is going to do is expose one of these sins at a time, but he's going to reverse the order of 10a. So he's going to, first of all, expose the godlessness of the false teachers in their despising authority, and then he's going to expose the godlessness of how they indulge in lust, okay? All the while, as he is doing this, Peter is urging us that we must know them for who they are. We must be on the alert and recognize the false teachers for who they are. You remember these words from Jesus. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his help. Father, this is heavy stuff. On this uh, beautiful, sun-shining day, we may be inclined to want more of the lighter things and the more more comforting and uh, joyful things of the gospel. And, of course, Lord, we do rejoice over the gospel as we have sung through, as we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. But often your word, because of the day in which we live, this present evil age, we must also focus on heavy things and, and critical threats, not only from the world, but also within the church itself. Oh God, I pray that we would take seriously the charge to be on the alert for false teachers. And I pray that we would protect our own souls, our, our homes and our families and our church, this church family against this very real threat. Help us, Father, to be faithful. Even when we get uncomfortable with what Your Word says, I pray that we would be convinced of it and strengthened by it and obedient in all Your commands. I thank You, O Lord, for Your Holy Spirit and I ask that Your Spirit would fill us, Lord, now so that we may be convinced in our minds and truly also in our hearts. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Jesus said again, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, by the outcome, by the production of their lives. Now, what is the fruit of these particular false teachers that Peter is exposing in chapter 2? We see it, what their fruit is. At the, uh, in the first part of verse 10. Their fruit is rebellion against authority and in, indulging their lusts. Now we have to take note of something. That's just the outward fruit of their lives. But that fruit is produced by the state of things deeper down in them. They rebel against authority and indulge in their lusts Because deeper down, they lack something vital. They lack the true knowledge of God and true godliness. And hence, the fruit of their lives is rebelling against authority and indulging in lust. But they lack true knowledge and godliness deeper down, which are the two chief things that Peter is urging us onto to pursue and to grow in. True knowledge and godliness. And there's another thing that they have deeper down that produces this rebellion against authority and constant indulging in their lusts, and it's this. It's pride. So they lack true knowledge and godliness, and they have, or maybe we should say, what has them, what possesses them is pride. It is a galling arrogance. We must be on guard against false teachers. We must remember as we as we are on the alert that they are not going to look like on the surface what they are inside. And it's not going to be evident from the first truly who they are. That's why Jesus said they come in sheep's clothing. So, of course, they're going to be civil. Of course, they're going to be very nice. Of course, they're going to produce um, a lot of good words and a lot of good deeds. But over time, they're going to be known. They're going to be recognized for who they truly are. We will know them eventually by their doctrine and by the life that they live. There are two things that you and I both need if we're going to stay on guard against the false teachers. If we are going to protect our own souls, our families, our church, and this church family, we need... What they don't have. We need that true knowledge of Christ and godliness. And both of those virtues, knowledge and godliness, must be humble. We'll talk more about that. But if we have these things, if we are pursuing these things and growing in them, we will recognize the false teachers for who they are, and we will be safe and we'll protect others also. Let's deal with this first matter how he exposes the false teachers for how they despise authority. Let's read verse 10b and 11 again. He says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce the blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, Peter's point here is very plain, but the details of this verse and a bit are not so plain. In fact, it's pretty difficult. And I have to tell you, this is a bit unfortunate, I guess, but I am, um, I have a different take on this than most commentators, which means I have to get into some details and spell things out. So I want you to stay with me, okay? Now, I'll tell you what most commentators conclude about this. Most commentators conclude that the false teachers are blaspheming evil angels, although a good many of those commentators don't know how they do blaspheme the evil angels. I don't think anybody really does know, but some admit they don't know how they could blaspheme them. Perhaps it's simply by dismissing you know, the existence of evil angels or demons, whatever you want to call them, dismissing their existence or dismissing their effect on the world today and on the church. So they conclude that the false teachers are blaspheming evil angels for three reasons. First, they come to that conclusion because of the phrase, glorious ones. And they interpret that as angels. They conclude it's evil angels because there's an obvious contrast in verse 11 between who they are blaspheming and good angels. And then third, they come to this conclusion because of the parallel passage in Jude. Um, 2 Peter chapter 2 and the letter of Jude are very, very similar to one another, very parallel. But I'm going to tell you this morning, uh, first of all, I'll, I'll give you two reasons why I disagree with that common interpretation. I'll say what I do believe, wrap it up with the conclusion, and then we'll finally move on to the next verse. This is why I disagree. First, I think this interpretation is wrong because there is no other place in the Bible where angels are called glorious ones, particularly evil angels. I think that would be a very odd way, which doesn't settle the argument, but a very unusual way to talk about evil angels, to call them glorious ones. Now, in fact, when you get deeper into the text and you probe the original language, you find that this translation, glorious ones, simply comes from one word. The word doxa, which is glory, and that's the plural form of the word doxa. So it's doxas, which means glories, and it's translated here, glorious ones, but In Peter's first letter, he uses the exact same word, the plural form of glory. You remember, well, we went over 1 Peter a few years ago. So there was a place in 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter was speaking of the Spirit of Christ in prophets in the past, indicating the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So it's the same word, that is translated glorious ones here. In that letter, first Peter is translated glories. And it's speaking of the, the glories that followed Jesus' victorious death. So I don't think translating it glorious ones is necessary. And if the translation goes further and says something like celestial beings, it's going quite a ways too far. The second reason I think that this interpretation is wrong is because contextually Peter is condemning the false teachers throughout this letter, not for denying the existence of angels, whether good or evil, but he is exposing them for denying the second coming of Jesus. That is his coming in glory and power on the last day. That's what they're denying. In fact, that's what even what they are scorning. They call it a cleverly devised myth. So here is my position on the details of this verse. First of all, I believe that the glories that the false teachers are blaspheming are the glories of God and Christ, especially pertaining to the second coming of Jesus on the last day. And then second, I think that The them, in verse 11, whom the angels won't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against, I think that's the false teachers, not evil angels. And I am aware of what Jude says and how it says, Michael the archangel refuses to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil. But I don't think Peter is following Jude that closely and I think he is saying something different. So here's the conclusion. So arrogant are these false teachers. That they will blaspheme Christ himself. Whereas angels who are even greater in power than they are, won't so much as pronounce a judgment against them, the false teachers. Instead, they leave that to God, who is the judge. Now, I could be wrong in this interpretation. I could be misinformed about something along the way. But the point, even if... So you can disagree with me. I'm, I'm cool with that if you disagree with my interpretation. But the point is very clear. His point is to condemn their rebellion against God, and for us to realize how appalling their arrogance against God is. Let's move on to verses twelve to thirteen A. Peter is pulling no punches here. All of this arrogance, he says, and yet they are pathetically ignorant. And there's a, there's a strong cadence and rhythm and um, rhetoric to this condemnation. Look at what he says. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. Theirs is the height of arrogance, and yet they are on the bottom rung when it comes to ignorance. These are the false teachers. Listen to me. Particularly, this pertains. The kind of false teacher. There are many kinds. But the kind of false teacher that this especially pertains to are the pleasure-mad purveyors of the prosperity gospel who promise Christians health and wealth, who treat God as just like another golden calf, just another domesticated idol using him for his gifts. That's who this parallels. That's the indictment against them. These who treat God as just a really a genie in a bottle. And Peter says they are like the most ignorant and destructive animals. It made me think of Gary's battle against, uh, wild hogs. And, uh, apparently, if we can trust Wikipedia, I looked this up on Wikipedia. That was a long article on feral pigs. <laughs> but I, I looked it up and apparently they're not native to, to North America. But the numbers in the last, since 1990, the numbers of these things have tripled. And they're just, they're an invasive species and do so much destruction. That's who Peter is comparing the false teachers to. Like wild hogs, invasive wild hogs doing so much damage to be destroyed. He says about them, they will suffer wrong for their wrongdoing they're sowing the seed of their own destruction. They say that we can live for the pleasures of this age and we can have all the pleasures of this age, all the health and all the wealth in and, and great abundance. Some of them will deny the judgment as the false teachers that Peter was exposing were denying the judgment. But as they deny the judgment, they are sowing the, the destruction of many and reaping their own exactly as they've sown it. Now, this is really heavy stuff, I think. But I think it's helpful. I have for quite a while um, in thinking about the false teachers, particularly the, the prosperity gospel false teachers. Have you ever wondered whether they are more deceived or deceiver? Have you ever wondered if they're just like lying through their teeth and they know it, or whether they are also deceived. You know, they really believe what they teach. Peter says that ultimately it doesn't matter. When it, when it comes to the question, deceived, are they deceived, or are they deceiver? Peter says, yes. He says they're both. They are deceived and deceiver, and being deceived as opposed to, say, lying through their teeth and knowing it, doesn't alleviate their guilt. It doesn't lift their condemnation. Because, he says, they, they are ignorant, but they are deliberately ignorant. They define the authority of God and defying the authority of His Word. The faith delivered once for all. They defy the authority of it. Listen, you and I must have what they don't have. They don't have the true knowledge of Jesus. If we're going to recognize them for who we they are, we must have that true knowledge of Jesus, and it may must be growing in us. Do you remember um, when Jesus, of course you remember how he condemned the, the hypocritical Pharisees of his day, the religious establishment. You remember he called them the blind guides. And we actually have a proverb from Matthew seven. We have this proverb today, borrowed from Matthew seven. What did Jesus say? They are the blind leading the. They're the blind leading the blind. Who do they mislead? Who stumbles because of them? Who is destroyed because of them? It's the blind. But who can't they lead? Who can't they lead? It's those who have what they don't have. Those who have sight. Those who know. They can't mislead them. The false teachers can't mislead those who truly know and are growing in that knowledge. Paul says that Christ gave to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers to equip the body for ministry, to build up the body for this reason, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and until we all attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Sometimes, all <laughs> well, we have all, probably all who are parents have, have said, if we've had enough time with children, we've said at one time or another, grow up. And that's the command, the exhortation of the Bible It's grow up. We have to grow up. We must, as Peter said, make every effort. Be all the more diligent to grow in the knowledge of Christ. In fact, it's growing in the knowledge of Jesus. That's Peter's opening prayer for this letter. And it's his closing command to the letter. At the beginning of the letter, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Growing in knowledge is his first prayer. His last command, the last verse is, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the protection of our own souls, for our homes and our families, for our church and the church family, for others who desperately need our help. And I, I have run across many, many who have been taken in by the prosperity gospel who just don't have that grounding in the Word. They need our help. So we must grow, not only for our sake, but for their sake also. Now let's move on to the second part of this. So Peter has exposed how the false teachers rebel against authority with galling arrogance. And he also now exposes how the false teachers indulge in the lust of defiling passion. And just as they have been arrogant in their ignorance, they are also arrogant in their lusts. Look at this beginning in the last half of verse 13. He says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. You know how usually the Bible portrays the activity of sin? It's what we choose to do in the dark. In the secret. So that people won't know us so that we can keep all of those things hidden. Proverbs 7 is typical of this. King Solomon says that he is looking out onto the street and he sees this young man who lacks all sense going down the street to the house of the forbidden woman to commit adultery with her. And he says, he spells it, he really, he says it's in the twilight that he goes. In the evening, at the time of night, and darkness because that's when you sin in these ways the false teachers are the same with their indulgence and lust but so arrogant are they that they're so happy just to do it in the daytime they don't save it for night it's in the day it's in the open This is, like I was saying a few weeks ago when talking about the the false teachers, this is nothing new. This rebellion against God is an ancient rebellion. In Jeremiah chapter 6, the Lord said, "See, speaking of the false prophets, he said, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. I think we would be quick probably to think of our society our culture, that has lost blushing, that people aren't embarrassed by sin anymore. All of this stuff is out in the open. Just uh, things that a decade ago would have been, well, let's just put it this way, not so quickly paraded, not so quickly promoted, are constantly, openly Paraded and promoted. But listen, remember, Peter's not talking about the culture. He's talking about the church. He's talking about within the church. And I'm afraid that it's not just false teachers, but many within the church are losing the ability to be embarrassed at sin. To not be ashamed by sin anymore. Let's continue. Verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They are given completely over to every lust. So that there is no restraint. Not in their lust for sex, which is the first thing, eyes full of adultery, ins- insatiable for sin. Their lust for power, which is the second thing, they entice unsteady souls. And their lust for many, hearts trained in greed. And what Peter goes on to say is well. Lust for sex, lust for power, lust for mon- many, money, there is no restraint. Not not a single woman, not a single disciple, not a single penny is sanctified in their eyes. None of it belongs to God. None of it's consecrated to Him. It's all for them to use, to consume on their own lusts. And Peter says they are so practiced in their greed that their hearts, look at it, their hearts are trained. In righteousness, they're novices. But when it comes to these schemes of greed, they are experts. He says they are accursed children. He's not talking about their age. He's just simply saying this is where they're from, this is where they're going. They are under the wrath of God and they are condemned. Fully committed to their own pleasure, their end is the pain of the fury of the wrath of God. They are justly condemned. They have chosen the broad road that leads to destruction. And they are enticing as many as they possibly can to follow them on that broad road. Look at what Peter says at the end of verse 15. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. You remember that name, Balaam? Balaam's story is found in the book of Numbers at that time when Israel is still wandering through the wilderness headed to the land of promise. Well, one of the nations that they came across through their wilderness wandering was the nation of Moab. And King Balak of Moab was rather intimidated by what he had heard God had done for the Israelites. And so he decided to go a different route with opposing Israel. Rather than just, you know, the, the normal way of attacking them, open warfare, Balak went to a prophet. Balaam was that prophet. He was known throughout the Middle East as a prophet for hire. And um, in those days, prophets were often called seers, S-E-E-R, known for, you know, having divine insight, um, Maybe enhance spiritual vision, however you want to put it. They're known as seers. And, and Balaam was a seer ranked higher than the rest. And so, Balak hired him. Now, in Numbers 22-24, to 24, we might think, well, he seems like not that bad of a guy. Like he might have some semblance of, of righteousness. But really, his motive is not righteousness. His motive is riches. That's all that Balaam cares about. And so he knows that, Balaam knows, that he can't simply call down curses from heaven upon Israel. Like, he knows he can't turn God against his covenant people. It can't happen. So he he tries to tell Balak that. Balak doesn't believe him. And he says, okay, pronounce curse against Israel, and Balaam says, I can only say what God wants me to say, but here goes. And he would open his mouth, and instead of you know curses pouring out, it was just blessing. Balak thinks, well, maybe we just need to try a different rock. Let's go over here. And a number of times they try, but all this stuff that comes out from Balaam, as he predicted, is just blessing on the people of God. But Balaam, realizing that he can't turn God against Israel, comes up with a different scheme. And you don't see this in Numbers 22 to 24. You actually see this several chapters later in Numbers 31. Instead of turning God against Israel, Balaam has the bright idea of turning Israel against God. And so he advises Balak to use the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel. And he believes that not only will to use the Old Testament term, not only will they yoke themselves with the women of Moab, but also to the gods of Moab. And that's exactly what happens. The ploy is successful. Now, let's remember something about the beginning of Balaam's story. Let's read verse 16. It says, But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You remember the most interesting part of the Balaam story. It happens at the beginning. When he is first called to, to go to Balak of Moab, um, he gets on his donkey and he goes on his way, and then an angel with drawn sword appears in the way. Balaam, the seer, doesn't see it. His donkey does. And so the donkey turns out of the way of Balaam. Well, Balaam hits his donkey, gets the donkey back on course. Again, the angel appears. The donkey sees it. The seer doesn't see it. The donkey turns aside, actually presses his foot into a a wall. Balaam's none too happy about that. He hits the donkey again. Third time, gets the donkey back on course. Again, the angel appears. Again, Balaam doesn't see it, but the donkey does. This time, the donkey doesn't bother turning aside. The donkey just sits right down. Again, third time, Balaam hits the donkey. And now it's when God gives to the donkey a human voice. And they converse back and forth. The donkey says, why are you doing this to me? Balaam annoyed says, because you don't do what I tell you to do. Donkey says, have I ever done this to you before? Balaam says, no, come to think of it. What's amazing about this, when you think about it, is the donkey is warning him. And at last, it actually happens that Balaam gets his sight. The seer gets his sight, and he sees the angel. He knows that there will be divine retribution if he opposes God. And yet he still goes. He pronounces blessing, but then he comes up with that other ploy. Can't turn God against Israel. We can turn Israel against God. That's what happens. Knowing that there is retribution for rebellion against God. Balaam continued on his way. What is Peter's point? It's similar to what he said earlier about the false teachers, where he said they are as dumb and they are as destructive as the animals to be destroyed. Now he's saying they're not at the bottom rung of ignorance. It's even lower than that. He says to know that there is retribution for opposing God, and yet to continue in the way of Balaam to be motivated by gain from wrongdoing, you have to be dumber than a donkey. That's what he is saying. And this is the false teacher. These are the health and wealth preachers arrogantly despising the authority of God and indulging in lust. How do we overcome these sins? And how do we stay on the alert for false teachers? Listen, as passionately as they give themselves to greed, we must give ourselves to godliness. Do you remember how Peter spelled this out in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7? where he said, add to your faith virtue into virtue, knowledge into knowledge, self-control. And he went through all of these godly characteristics. And he said in verse 8, if these qualities are yours, listen, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must grow we must know our god and know him more we must strive more and more for true godliness you know if all if all the money you ever handled was counterfeit like cheap counterfeit money if that's all you ever handled what would you think of the genuine dollar bill you would think that's the fake And that's what those who are enticed by false teachers conclude, that the true is actually the fraud. It's only by actually knowing thoroughly the truth that you're able to spot the fake. You will not be able to defend yourself or defend others. And that's so important. Let me just pause right here for a quick second. When we're thinking about application, what's what's for me in this message? What can I receive? How can I apply this to my life? Don't forget helping other people. You are being equipped for ministry. Because there's plenty here not hearing a message today about false teachers. Which is fine. But some don't ever hear messages about false teachers. To be on the alert. To be grounded in the word of God. To contend for the faith delivered once for all. You are being equipped to help others. You can't defend yourself or others if you are not growing in knowledge and godliness yourself. So Peter says, make every effort to grow. But if you do grow, you'll know the fraud from the genuine. You know why? Because you yourself will be the genuine. You will be the true man of God. You will be the true woman of God. Knowing the true Son of God from those who lie about Him. So in our church and in our homes, let's pursue the true knowledge and the true godliness of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are asking for your help. I thank you, Father, for this time that we have had together. Um, I thank you for the attentiveness that You have helped us to have to Your Word today. I thank You, Lord, for the conviction that You are putting in our hearts today. I pray, Lord, that we would make every effort to grow in the knowledge of Christ, not only for our own personal individual sake, but, Lord, so that we can help others, so we can turn them back from the broad road that leads to destruction. Help us, Lord, to not only sound the warning with courage, But let us also, Lord, by your Spirit, uh, have compassion for those who are lost. Lord, we know it's only by your grace that we are saved. So may we extend, pour out from our lives the same grace to others. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.